Welcome to Fully Invested, a podcast series hosted by Ropes and Gray's global asset management team. Drawing on the perspectives of over 1,400 attorneys from all areas of our practice, we provide insight into essential considerations associated with current and emerging asset management products. I'm Brian Hunkley, and today I'm joined by my Ropes and Gray colleagues, Jason Brown, Alyssa Horton, and Joel Wattenberger. On this episode, we'll be discussing the essentials of Form ADV with a view towards simplicity and brevity. Jason, maybe you could start us off by just explaining what Form ADV is and why it's important. Sure. So Form ADV is the form that investment advisors use to register with the SEC. It's the form that exempt reporting advisors use um, to file a required notice filing with the SEC, and it has to be updated from time to time. The Form ADV itself um, consists of several parts. Um, There's Part 1A, um, which is uh, fill-in-the-blank. I think of it as name, rank, and serial number type information. Data about um, the advisor, its assets under management, certain of its practices, um, information about its private funds. Um, Again, all very kind of fact-based. Um, then there is um, Part 2A, which is also known as the brochure. Um, the Part 2A is narrative um, and addresses concepts like um, investment strategies, investment risks, fees and expenses, um, conflicts of interest, um, and it's all in a, in a narrative um, format. There's also part 2B, um, which is information about certain investment personnel. And then um, for advisors with retail clients, um, there's also a part three. Got it. That's very helpful. Thank you. And and Alyssa, who has to file a form ADV and and when do they have to file it? Sure. So all entities that qualify as investment advisors need to register as um, an investment advisor unless they otherwise qualify for an exemption. So those are entities that provide investment advice for compensation to others. Um, We'll discuss the process in a little bit more detail, I think, later on. But in general, all registered investment advisors need to essentially be registered if they're going to have more than $100 million in RAUM, um, again, unless they qualify for an exemption. For those that qualify for an exemption, they have 60 days after relying on the exemption to make the ADV filing. And Joel, what are the policy reasons behind the filing requirement and the substance of the filing? There's a big picture of two policy reasons, and these are probably pretty self-evident, even just from the description of the form. But the first is just for the SEC to gather information about investment advisors over which it has some degree of authority. And uh, it uses that information in a couple of different ways. One is it aggregates that information. It reports out on an annual basis sort of aggregate information about the investment advisor industry in the U.S., and it relies on data provided on Form ADV to do so. But it also uses the information it receives on Form ADV to determine uh, which advisors will be subject to exam and on what frequency. Know that the SEC determines who it will examine uh, based on a risk assessment. And that risk assessment in the first instance is based on information that's been provided by the advisors themselves on their Form ADV. And the information on Form ADV also very much informs the sorts of issues that the SEC will look at on any particular exam of any particular investment advisor, registered investment advisor, or exempt reporting advisor. 
so that's policy reason number one. And policy reason number two is, is really it is a disclosure document. And Jason already spoke at length about the Part 2A, which is the client brochure section of Form ADV. But the SEC views that document as an essential disclosure document to clients of uh, registered investment advisors, as well as investors and private funds managed by registered investment advisors. And so it's very important that investment advisors uh, you know, really give careful attention to the information that is provided to their investors on Part 2A, ensure that the disclosures they make on Part 2A are consistent with the disclosures they make in their fund offering documents, that they are regularly updated to reflect changes in the advisor's business. And we see those disclosures in Part 2A play a very important role both in exams and in uh, defense against enforcement matters and enforcement investigations initiated by the SEC. Uh, so just a critical disclosure document in that respect. Thanks for that, Joel. And, and Jason, what are, what are the material risks of noncompliance, either, either not filing the form ADV or filing it in a way that, that doesn't include all the relevant information or is misleading in another way? Yeah, so um, this sort of, as you said, breaks into two different sections, right? One is what if you don't file at all? Um, and, you know, the filing is necessary to become a registered investment advisor. And if you are an investment advisor who should be registered and you're not, um, the SEC takes that very seriously. Um, and the SEC um, has a range of options available to it. It could, you know, follow up and say, hey, you need to register as an advisor. Um, but, it, you know, at one end, on the other end, it could follow up and say, we're bringing an enforcement action against you. Um, we're going to bring a suit against you, um, and there will be, you know, fines and other penalties, and it will be public um, because you should have filed as an investment advisor and didn't. Um, <clears throat> similarly, with respect to um, the content itself, um, that can also range greatly how the SC would react to it if there were any issues. Typically, once you're registered, that comes up on an exam. Um, the SC examines uh, advisors from time to time, and part of that exam will involve the SC reviewing your ADV. Again, it can range from the most minor of things, you know, little technicalities where the wrong box was checked, um, you know, other areas where the SC thinks perhaps, you know, you could have provided a more fulsome answer, and those might be, you know, deficiencies on an exam. On the other hand, if there are more material misstatements um, or if there are material omissions, um, the SC can also use that as grounds. They could, they could provide it, uh, you with a deficiency, but they could also bring an enforcement action as well. And they have a lot of discretion um, when it comes to that. So it is really critical um, you know, to be filling out those forms, you know, correctly, and especially in the Part 2A, to make sure that, again, um, you have all the material uh, information that's required and that it is accurate. So we've established that it's an important thing to do, and, and, and we want to make sure we do it timely and, and with appropriate disclosure. Um, Alyssa, can you talk a little bit about the process for first-time registrants, What's that, what that looks like in, in, in particular, kind of what it looks like next to a potential fundraise? Sure. 
So essentially, in order to register, there's two steps that advisors need to be thinking of. Um, the first is completing the Form ADV, which is the registration document, like we said. Um, the second step is to put into place uh, the full infrastructure of a compliance program. And that actually typically takes a lot longer in terms of timing than actually completing the Form ADV documents themselves. So what this means is, you know, firms will need to hire a CCO, they'll need to get uh, in place their reporting processes, their record keeping processes, make sure they really understand all of the obligations that will be imposed upon them under the Advisors Act. Uh, for a lot of, you know, new advisors uh, in a first-time fundraise, this also means, you know, maybe interviewing and hiring compliance consultants to help them with the process. But it's important to sort of understand, too, that there are timing considerations that interplay with the fundraise. So, you know, as we noted, you need to be fully registered by the time you have a first close. So after you make a Form ADV filing, the registration doesn't happen automatically. The SEC has 45 days to either grant your registration or to ask questions or to come back with sort of any concerns. So you need to factor in that window into your fundraising and first close. But it's also important to understand that the SEC can also grant registration earlier. It doesn't often happen, but they could grant it after one week of filing. So you need to be ready to act as a fully registered advisor once you make the filing. So I guess the question is then, well, why not just make a filing as soon as you start thinking about fundraising and then just wait until to have a first close? Um, lovely idea, but you need a basis for registration. And for most first-time advisors, there's the ability to register if you expect to have the necessary regulatory assets under management within 120 days of filing. So essentially, you know, within four months of making the Form ADV filing, you expect to have the full $100 million, um, in RAUM, and you can be a fully registered advisor. So you essentially need to time your first close within a window that, you know, you expect to be granted full registration, and you will have the necessary RAUM. Um, again, it's a little bit of a, of a, you know, a funny timing thing. Um, and it's just something to be mindful of. Folks can, you know, often get extensions if, they're, if their first closes do get pushed back. But, you know, as folks are fundraising, and this might not be totally front of mind, it is something that people still need to be thinking about. Thank you. And, and Joel, once, once we've registered, what are the obligations that an investment manager would have going forward to update it form ADV? How often does it update? And how substantive are those updates? Sure. Well, there's two types of updates to form ADV. One is an annual amendment, and the other is an other-than-annual amendment. The annual amendment is just what it says. It's an annual refresh to the Form ADV. Um, it needs to be filed each year within 90 days after an advisor's fiscal year ends. And since most advisors have a calendar year fiscal year, this is why March is every regulatory lawyer's least favorite month. Um, but that is just a full refresh where you just update all of the information on every part of the Form ADV. And then there are other than annual amendments, and there are certain changes to an investment advisor's business that require an advisor to file a prompt amendment to Form ADV, uh, even though it otherwise could wait until its annual amendment to update the information on its Form ADV. And some of those are fairly intuitive, things like if there's been a new disciplinary event with respect to the advisor or its supervised persons that needs to be reported, or if the advisor has changed office locations. On the other hand, if the advisor raises a new $10 billion private fund that has the same strategy as a previous fund managed by the advisor, that typically wouldn't require a prompt amendment. So 
uh, you know, really, it's just one of those things where if you're an investment advisor, you're a registered advisor, and there's some sort of change to your business, it's worth just checking with your lawyer or your compliance consultant and just ask the question, hey, is this a change that's going to require me to file a prompt other than annual amendments? Um, and that's really all there is to it. Thanks, Joel. And Jason, the form ADV and particularly the brochure tends to look a little like a funds offering material. So, so what is the interplay or interaction between the form ADV and a registrant's funds offering materials? So, you know, which one controls? Which one, you know, h- how does one impact the other? And, and when you're updating the form ADV on an annual basis, do you take into account changes you've made in your offering materials over the year? Yeah, it's a great question. I think it's fair to say the two are really um, designed to be read in tandem. Um, There are certainly some overlaps between what would typically appear in offering materials and what would typically appear in form ADV. Um, Investment strategies, investment risks, conflicts of interest. And what we have found is a couple of things. One is it is critical to make sure that they are consistent. Um, That doesn't mean that they both have to be carbon copies of each other, um, but, you know, a discussion of strategy in the ADV should be consistent with a discussion of strategy in your offering material. Now, different registrants do this differently. Some will have the ADV and offering materials be largely the same. Um, But most firms that I work with will have some differences. For example, um, it's quite common that the risk factor section in um, the Offering materials is going to be a lot longer and a lot more detailed than the investment risk section in the ADV. On the other hand, it's not uncommon for the conflicts of interest section in the ADV um, to be longer than the conflict section in um, the offering materials. And in our experience on exam, so long as the form ADV is provided to investors um, before uh, a fund closing, then In effect, the SC gives you um, credit for both the disclosure you might have in, say, a PPM and the disclosure um, that you might have um, in an ADV. And so, again, in that sense, I think they can kind of be, you know, read together as supporting each other. Um, And then, you know, with respect to annual updates, absolutely. If there are, you know, changes um, in investment strategies or other changes that are reflected in, you know, updated offering materials, um, those should definitely, you know, be reflected um, as part of the regular updating of Form ADV. Thank you. And, and Alyssa, just one, one final question, I guess, which is, you know, what are some common mistakes or misconceptions that newer existing registrants have about Form ADV? Maybe some things you've seen where, you know, a client, our clients' expectations are a little different from, from the reality of the form and, and the obligation. Yeah, thanks, Brian. So I think probably the biggest misconception is, is really sort of a big picture issue. And, and that's that folks should really just go ahead and complete the ADV without consulting with advisors, um, you know, legal counsel and stuff like that. Um, you know, while folks may just think that you're responding to basic questions, the form ADV is a pretty complicated document. And, you know, it's filled with defined terms. And there are a lot of nuances um, SEC guidance in FAQs and, and risk alerts and, you know, stuff that we have seen on exams that really sort of inform how certain questions should be responded to. Um, in particular, with respect to the brochure, um, the Part 2A, 
I think, you know, uh, legal counsel can be very helpful in understanding, you know, how certain conflicts should be disclosed, how folks should think about disclosing certain things, and just what's market practice in terms of, you know, different approaches. So I think, you know, to, to go at the ATV by yourself um, is probably one of the bigger mistakes that we see folks make. And, and we'd really encourage people to, you know, kind of carefully consider this and work with your advisors when, you know, when, um, you know, faced with filing this for the first time or at your annual and other than annual amendments. Well, thank you for that. And thank you, Jason, Alyssa, and Joel for joining me for this discussion. Uh, thank you to our listeners. We appreciate you tuning into Ropes and Gray's fully invested podcast series. Please visit our website at www.ropesgray.com slash asset management, or feel free to reach out to any of us at Ropes and Gray by email or phone for more information. You can also subscribe to this Ropes and Gray series wherever you typically listen to podcasts, including on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Thanks again for listening. 